Hello and welcome to Conversations from the ANF podcast. In this episode, we speak to Maggie May and she shares her unconventional journey through the foster care system and her decision to be adopted at 14 years old. Maggie May has a unique perspective and also lives with the hidden disability of FASD. She describes the challenges she faced and the impact of the diagnosis on her life. It's a remarkable story and we'll definitely be asking Maggie May back on to share the work she does as an advocate for the FASD community and the education and support she offers to carers and parents of children with FASD. As always, if you've experienced of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please get in touch through the Facebook or Twitter page or you can email us at andfpodcast at gmail.com. Um, so, hello, my name hello. is Maggie McHugh, but I'm also known as Maggie May, um, and I am now 26, and I suppose I my journey started at three months when I was placed into foster care, um, and at that point, I hadn't been diagnosed with any disabilities or I hadn't flagged any, I guess, red flags weren't put up regarding any hidden disabilities and anything. Um, and I suppose I, I am very open to the fact that I'm, I know my birth family. I would have weekly, when I was younger, it was weekly meetings with them. Um, as I grew up, it became monthly. And then um, later on, I got to decide when I wanted to meet them instead of it being just being told you're meeting your family today at this time. Um, and so the meetings became a lot more distanced um, just as my life got more busy. Um, I am very one of the very lucky ones these days in Ireland where I wasn't placed in multiple foster homes. Um, I was placed into one foster home where I stayed until they adopted me. Um, and that's a bit of a story in itself. Um, but it was also thanks to my foster family, now adopted family, that I was diagnosed with FASD. Um, it was really all thanks for them and their fighting to get recognition and get me diagnosed. And it was really down to them. Um, and they have been a really support raft for me. Um, so currently I still live at home. Um, I do a lot of international advocating and educating and support work for individuals with FASD. Um, I do a lot of educating for caregivers, foster carers, um, teachers, SMEs, um, about raising the awareness of FASD and supporting individuals in the classroom, in the home setting. And I also am an ambassador for FASD Awareness UK. Um, and I also work for FASD Ireland part-time. That's pretty, and a pretty impressive sort of CV in relation to the work that you're doing um, for in raising awareness and you know promoting sort of change and you know and supporting people around FASD. So can I? I mean, there's so many different ways we could go, um, but I'd love to find out a little bit about your your journey into adoption because that's really quite unusual. And then maybe we can talk about FASD 
after that. But can you tell me how old you were when you were adopted and were you part of those those that conversation? Yeah. So I suppose my heritage is I'm a gypsy or in Ireland we're known as travellers. Um, so I'm the youngest out of seven and my mom was an alcoholic um, and that was never hidden from me. Um, in fact, it was just, it was never put in a negative light. It was just explained to me that, you know, my mom had an itch that she just had to itch and that would, that it was the drink. Um, so it's never put to me that my biological mother was a bad mother or a negative. It was just explained to me that she had issues and that was the reason I was in care. Um, so I'm the youngest out of seven and all of our kids were in care, um, at different ages. Um, I'm the only one who chose not to go back after I could have, um, because I, I saw what my journey would have been if I had gone back because I was seeing how my siblings were faring with that life and I didn't want that. Um, so um, my foster parents got guardianship of me at 12. Um, and I suppose it was a very big concern at that time because legally, if I ever got into an accident and stuff, guardianship wasn't going to be enough if I needed life-saving surgery. Um, right. They wouldn't have been able to sign for it. Um I knew from experience when it came to the meetings that I have my biological family, trying to get in contact with them was a nightmare um, because my my siblings and my mom are, also, are now alcoholics also, so they were not reliable. Um, and for me, that was a huge anxiety, being like, if I, if I was relying on them to save my life, I would not survive. Um, and so I asked at 14, could I be adopted? Um, and that kind of set the ball rolling. Um, I was the one who initiated it. There was a lot, a lot, a lot of red tape that I don't think any of us were expecting. Um, so my, my biological father died um, when I was two years. So I had gone to my we had set up, the social workers had set up like a meeting and it was just being my birth mom in the room. And that was a lot in itself. The fact that in the traveler community, you, it is a huge taboo. If your kids are in foster care in the first place, there's a lot of shunning and it's just not good. Especially if all of your kids have been through the care system. Um, it's just, it's not okay in that society. It's even worse if a child is asking to be adopted out because blood is thicker than water and it's a huge taboo and it just doesn't happen. It's yeah. It brings shame on the family name. And I knew this and, you know, but I still went ahead and I asked her, you know, look, can I be adopted? Um, you'll always be my birth mom. I love you. Um, you know, I'm always going to think of you as my birth mom. But you, you and I both know you cannot give me the support I need with my disability, with yeah. support, just with 
the fact that I was in such a stable environment. I was in, I'm the only one to have finished uh, secondary school, to have gone to university. Um, I'm the only one who hasn't got kids. Um, all of my sisters had kids by 17. Um, my brothers all had kids by, they were 18, 19. Um, so that was, that's the lifestyle. That's just normal. Um, and so my mother didn't blink an eye and just said yes. Um, because she knew she couldn't give me the support. She knew where I was was stable. I was actually breaking the cycle as it would be. And I remember we just kind of talked and I was just like, you know, we don't know anything about each other. Um, because during the weekly access, she would be distracted because the rule was you have to be sober for 24 hours if you want to see your kids. Yeah. So during the meetings, she would be distracted and just, and growing up now, I know why the fact that she was going through withdrawal and that she was, her mind was on drink. Um, and I still praise her to this day. She passed away three years ago, but I still praise her to the day, the fact that she was willing to go through that uncomfortableness to make sure that our kids are okay, just so she could see them for a few hours to make sure that all of them are okay in their different homes. Um, and we just kind of talked and it was really weird because it was like in that hour and a half, I knew more about where I came from, my heritage, um, than I'd ever known before. Um, and we also knew that my, there was only my oldest sister was the one who was kind of the caregiver for my mom. They all lived in like one house that was split into two houses. Um, so there was no space. And we all knew that once news broke out among my siblings, they were going to go after my mom pretty much and try and convince her to take back the permission because I suppose. Yeah. They were very much into, you know, you don't get adopted out. Um, so my big sister, my biological, did a lot of fighting off the siblings from harassing my mother, um, being like, this is Maggie's decision. This is what's best for her. Um, but we did not realize that her permission wasn't enough. Um, so I was adopted. Once you're 18 in Ireland, you can't get adopted. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if it's the same in the UK. Um, I think so, yeah. So I asked to be adopted just as I turned 14, maybe. Um, and the adoption did not go through until three months before my 18th birthday. Crikey. Quite intense. I mean, it, you describe sort of having this meeting where you sort of, you had to tell your mum or ask your mum for permission. I mean, that's a lot. That's a big ask for a teenager, for anyone. But, you know, to you sit there alone. And did she know that you were going to ask that question or, or was it out of the blue? I I think she was given a slight heads up being like, for example, I, the rest of my siblings all went home to live with my mom, um, to go back into that environment. I had never gone home to live with my, like I've never lived with them. Um, yeah. I was taken pretty much from birth. I was placed in one foster family while they were trying to find me a long-term foster family. Um, because my first foster family, it was deemed that she was of an age where 
there is a great potential she would have passed away before I would have made it to 18. Um, so they're just trying to find a, the right family. Yeah. Um, so, and the rest, like I'm the youngest. So the rest of my siblings were, they remember what it was like living at home with my birth family yeah. or my birth parents at the time. Um, so they all went back as soon as they could. Um, I think at the age, the first three went back at the age of 16, you could go back to, you could leave the care system and then they changed the age to 18, but they all chose to go back and I never did. Even when I could have at 16, kind of, I could have fought to have left or I didn't. Um, But my siblings all had this dream that I would return to them and we'd be one big happy family and you know it would and that was never going to happen um there was a few things that came out afterwards where i was told things so i i'd always assumed that they didn't want anything to do with me um for me I went into care and my sister had her first daughter. Um, there's two years between us. And so for me, I felt like I growing up, I, she would get all the attention. She was almost closer to all my siblings than I was. Um, so for me, I kind of felt she was my replacement. The fact that they didn't miss me as a sibling because they had this new baby that was close enough to my age that right they all treated her as their younger sister. Mm. Um, so there was never really a lot of loss of, oh, we don't have a little sister. It's your niece is pretty much that person. Um, I was never invited to things, birthday parties, christenings, um, family events. I had never been invited. Um, I would often invite them to like my ballet shows when I knew they were in the same town and they would be free because I knew money was an issue. So, you know, I'd invite them because I know that it was free. It was in the same town. They could have easily come if they wanted to. And I did these ballet shows for 13 years. I suppose part of me every year where I tell my social worker, can you let them know it's on, you know, pass on the message that they're more than welcome to come. Every year I would look into the crowd to see if they came. Um, every year. I always had this. I would dance my heart out thinking, oh, maybe they came. Um, they never came. Every year, no. And then after I was adopted, it kind of came out that they hadn't been told. Um, that in fact, they had invited me to family events during the year. But because it was outside of a time a social worker could have been there. Um, I wasn't told um, because there was no one to supervise. So Mm. there was a bit of miscommunication where I had assumed things and they had assumed things when in fact we had tried to kind of meet outside or we had been inviting each other to events for years and both sides were never told. Um, That's awful basically, isn't it? There's no way around it. That's, that's because that informed part of your decision to be adopted, didn't it? That, that your understanding of them as a family. Yeah. Um, and then I'd always, 
And I suppose for me, I have to kind of take it because I'm hearing it from my biological side because we're in contact occasionally these days. And so, you know, I have to take some of it with a pinch of salt being like, is this just their perception of what happened? Um, but I was kind of hearing things being like, um, I'd always been told I'd been, I suppose, um, voluntarily placed in care. Yeah. Um, whereas later on, I was being heard actually, no, my mother didn't want me to be in care at all. That, you know, she had been coerced to put me in. Um, and the fact that I was kind of told it broke her heart and, you know, she went into depression and stuff. Some of it, I think, is to ease the guilt on my birth side's family of yeah. the fact that, um, and so I was like, well, it could partly could have been true. The fact that, you know, she did lose all her kids, but it's also just being able to read between the lines and still ensure that, you know, I, to this day, I made the right decision hundred percent. Um, but yeah, the learning things afterwards definitely was like, would that have changed? My wanting to probably not would that have made me maybe have a bit of a closer relationship with my biological family potentially, um, because this all came out in a huge row, um, and it was actually my niece who was two years between us. She was like, you know, why didn't we always invited you to my my sweet sixteenth and why didn't you ever come? And I was like, I was never told. And so they're like, well, we stopped inviting you to things because we thought you didn't want to come. We, we thought you were ashamed of us, that you didn't want anything to do with us. And yeah. I was like, so it was kind of, that led to a lot of, I think, tension between us over the years um, yeah. because it was very, and they have been told, you know, they couldn't send me birthday cards. They weren't allowed to send me birthday cards. They weren't allowed to have contact with me outside of these hours. So, you know, growing up, I never received birthday cards from them or birthday presents or any of that. And so I think once we kind of all, everything was in the air, being like, you know, we weren't told, you weren't told. No, we thought of you for over the years. We were always, you know it broke down some of the ice that have been between us. We're still, we're still not very close at all, but at least we're better understanding of each other where there is no bad blood between us. There's still a bit of bad blood. The fact that I asked to be adopted out and that's just, that's more culture. I think than they knew it was the best for me, but it's still just culture wise. It's not okay. They got a lot of painful. It's painful and they got a lot of judgment and stuff from yeah. the rest of the society yeah. um, and abuse and stuff verbally and everything being like, you know, and so, I mean, I brought shame to the family name. And so, yes, I can see why they're not, there's oh, still a bit of bad blood between us. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that's a really complicated sort of way yeah. for it all to, you know, had to pick up the pieces and move on. Um, can I ask, um, I mean, clearly a big part of what you do now as an adult 
is around FASD. And so in the mix of all of these circumstances, when was there a point when your you know, then foster carer, your carers kind of said, actually, we think we think there's something going on. You know, there's this hidden disability. Because um, I, I know a little bit about Ireland and I know that it's um, it's still not a very well-known issue. It's still, so what, you know, how did they get to that? Because that's quite remarkable really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I suppose part of FASD and stuff is failure to thrive. Um, I didn't put on weight um, and I wasn't hitting the milestones. Now, because I suppose my foster family knew about my birth family and stuff that for them, they're like, it could just be genetics or whatever. They didn't really think of it yeah. as a triggering thing. Um, but my mother is half German. Um, so she had friends come over from Germany and they just took one look at me and was like, she has FASD. And my foster mom took great offense at being like, excuse me there is nothing wrong with my child she's perfect how dare you um until she began to think about it and then i think that's when it started to tick being like that would explain a lot of things like maggie jumping off tables in school um because of my adhd um i the fact that i was very behind academically against other people my own age um No, I was ticking all the boxes. Um, but of course, in Ireland, FAC doesn't exist. Um, yeah. So trying to convince social workers um, uh, that actually, you know, there's a very good potential that this child has a hidden disability. And it was really funny. So my psychiatrist at the time, she believed my mom. Um, she was very, so she actually flew to Canada to get the training needed to come back to Ireland to diagnose. Wow, that's a commitment. Um, and to this day, she's one of the handful, like there's probably less than 10 people in Ireland who can diagnose, um, and she's one of them. But, so the social workers could not pretend that there was nothing wrong with me. I had an official diagnosis. And they turned around to my mom and said, you can give her back if you want. Um, Ouch. Yeah, you're like, oh, we know you didn't sign up to have a disabled child. You can give her back. Um, and to my, my mom didn't think about it. She was like, no, this is, she's my child. Um, I'm sure there's a few discussions over the years being like, this really is not what we signed up for. Um but I'm still here. Um, but my social workers did do something that I still have a bit of bad blood towards, which was I got diagnosed at five and I wasn't told until I was 14 because my social workers had forbidden my foster parents from telling me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to get my head around why they would do that. Do you have any any insight as to why they might do that? My social worker at the time, I guess, was a little bit old-fashioned. And 
she thought that the bigger picture would be that I would go home to my birth family and we'd all have a happily ever after story. Um, even though I'd been placed in long-term foster care. So, I mean, I wasn't going to be going back there until I was 18. And so she didn't want me to have any negative feelings towards my birth mom. So she didn't want me to be told. Wow. So, so was it when you decided to be, or you made the choice to be adopted? Was that when you were told? Uh, no, actually, I got a new social worker and okay. uh, from, from Canada. Um, she was amazing. Um, and I think like the first day my mom met her, she's like, Maggie has this diagnosis. We were told we cannot tell her. Can we tell her? And my new social worker was like, why the hell wasn't she told sooner? What the hell was the other social worker thinking? This is madness, craziness. Um, tell her. Of course you have to tell her. Um, and I, like, to this day, I, and I often get asked when I do training and talking as being, do I have any negative feelings towards my birth mom? Absolutely not. In Ireland, there is no support. My mother came from an alcoholic family. She's surrounded by alcoholics. Um, she never set out to harm me or the rest of my siblings. She didn't know. The support yeah. wasn't there to give her a choice where she could choose that, you know, I'm pregnant, I'm going to stop drinking. There was no support for that. Like, I could never expect her to give up drink when everyone else around her is drinking. Her husband is drinking. Her parents are drinking. Her yeah. siblings are drinking. It was, and also, she like doctors are saying it was okay to drink at that time. So how can I hold something against her when actually it was being encouraged? Um, so no, I to this day, I have nothing but pride and inspiration and love for my birth mom because she didn't know. If anything, it was the support of Ireland and stuff that let her down. She didn't let me down. She was the one who was let down by society. Um, and I suppose I wish that this, my first social worker had enough hop on to be like, it's not going to affect somebody. It's if you explain it to them properly, which is what was done to me explaining my mother's alcoholism, being like, it was an itch. You know what it's like Maggie to have an itch where you just, when you have a mosquito bite and you just have to scratch it. Um, that's what it was like for your mom. So if my social worker had a bit of cough bomb, being like, if we just explain it to her in a certain properly and just be very open about it and da da da. But no, she didn't. So that part of my FAC journey is a weird one because people around me knew that I had this diagnosis and I didn't know. Um, so so when I do like advocating and educating, I'm, I'm like, well, I can't have both sides. I grew up as if I didn't have a diagnosis, even though officially I was diagnosed very young. Um, but I wasn't told until I was 14. So. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, a remarkable kind of circumstance. What I'm thinking about your foster carers. So did they care for you and parent you in a different way in knowing that you had this diagnosis, did they sort of communicate that to school? Did the people around you have an understanding? And what did they do differently to sort of support you as this, you know, this girl growing up with this hidden disability? My parents are, were very, so they had three of their own biological kids. Um, 
And before me, they had fostered about 40 other kids short term um, through the years. I was never treated any differently necessarily to the rest of the kids, you know. But I was. So I was kind of given a little bit more lean way um, because, you know, there were certain things that I needed. So, you know, I wouldn't be getting the same consequences if my adopted brother, who's their biological son, time did the same thing. Yeah. Because for me, I would just do it without thinking. Um, we had stairs in our old house and I would just jump off them without even thinking, being like, I could break my neck. Um, because I didn't think of consequences until after. Um, I was giving cats. So we, we, we've always been an animal family. Um, for me, very early on, I was introduced to cats to teach me boundaries. Um, because if a cat does not want to be touched, you will get scratched. Um, yeah. And uh, you can't hide scratches. So my parents would be like, Maggie, were you touching the cats? Were you, you know, and, you know, I couldn't say no because my arms were in shreds. Um, do you think the cat wanted to be, um, was a cat giving signals that maybe she didn't want to be picked up and squeezed and stuff? Um, so for me, cats were how my parents taught me boundaries. Um, and to say, I have, I have cats. I'm a cat mom. Um, because also they, they don't need a lot of looking after. Unlike dogs. I've had dogs as well. And dogs are just, you have to feed them, you know, walk to walk them every day. Um, they're very, they're very much dependent on you. Whereas cats will be very, you feed them. If they want to be cuddled, they'll be cuddled. If they don't, you're fine. Um, so they're just a very low maintenance animal at times. It's great. But I was, given i suppose just a more i was allowed to it was okay for me to make the same mistakes over and over again um but i was still the consequences would just be different so i know growing my adopted siblings who are there they're like you got away with so much when you were younger if we had done that we would have been dead um and as my parents put it, every child is different. Their needs are different, whether they have a hidden disability or not. Um, there is really no one size fits all when it comes to parenting. Um, but what they said about me was, you know, they had to take their parenting book and throw it out the window because none of those what steps that are supposed to work worked with me. Um, so for them, it was parenting a new child. I was like their first ever child where they didn't know what they were doing. Um, our phone bills were very expensive in those days because the internet did not exist. Um, and if it did, it was terrible. Um, and my mom was ringing around like America and Canada and Germany and Sweden being like, you know, trying to get like advice and what works. Um, so they actually built me like a sensory room and this all came out of their own pocket. Um, and you know, I'd have swings from the ceiling. I'd have trapezes. I would, have like gym mats, I'd have um, sensory fidgets and uh, like gymnastic balls and stuff for yeah. to suit my sensory needs. Um, recently dismantled that and donated it to the social services, three used and 
part of that was we had to kind of figure out how much it all cost. Um, so we did, and it cost about 10. At that point, it would have been 35000 for all the equipment, the cost, the, uh, bringing it from America to Ireland, because you couldn't get any, any of this stuff in Ireland at the time. Mm. Um, and the social workers were like, well, why don't you just sell it? And we're like, no, no every child deserves so if you have a child in care that you think would really benefit from having this sensory stuff then give it to them for free you're not allowed to charge them for it you know you just give it to them because they need it i don't need it anymore but i wanted to go on helping people and stuff so but that all came out of their own pocket the social workers refused to help buy any of it and then by them i was like no because they're like, if the social services help buy for it, then they're going to be like, oh, we own it all. Da, da, da. So my mom was very adamant at that point, being like, they didn't help before. We don't want their help now because then it's our stuff. We can do with it as we want rather than having to be stipulated and be like, oh, we bought that bit or we helped. So then it was just going to make things very complicated. It's an um, amazing commitment from your, you know, your, your parents um, and did they, as you sort of grew up and got older, did they work with schools to sort of, did you, did you go to mainstream school? Um, and how did they support you there? Were they, I mean, it sounds like they were amazing advocates for you. Don't get on the wrong side of my mother. <laughs> um, oh, she, she advocated and she fought for schools, um, as I'm sure you've heard, you know, uh, FAC isn't recognized in Ireland. So teachers, even though I had the diagnosis, I had the documentation, I had folders and folders of the, you know, the fact that I was ADHD, dyslexic, anxiety disorders, um, sensory issues. Um, even though I had documents and files and everything on this, they didn't believe it. Um, so often schools would be like, she looks fine. There's nothing wrong with her. Um, For example, I couldn't read at 10. Um, I couldn't write, really. Um, And so every year, every day, I'd come home and homework was just an issue in itself. Um, You know, I'd come home and I would have been given spellings and stuff. Or and I would sit there for an hour, two hours. I could spell it out and I... Or, but I could not get the words out of my hand. Um, I'd be, you know, vocalizing what I'm trying to write and, you know, it would be T's or A's and just the letters be wrong. Um, and my mom would watch me struggling every day and it would turn into huge fights being like, well, you can sound it out. Why can't you write it out? Um, and she talked to someone about it and they're like, well, have you tried magnetic letters? And my mom was like, no. So she went out and bought like magnetic letter alphabet and a magnetic board. And she put it in front of me and she said, spell cat. And I could spell it perfectly because I knew what the letter should look like. I yeah. knew what the word should look like. I just, I suppose the signal from my brain to my hand is flickery, I suppose. So... My brain knows what it's trying to say, but it just cannot get the message out to my hand. So, 
And so we started using magnetic letters like in the classroom and stuff. And I was top of the speller. I could spell every word. Um, and because I was starting to be able to then spell the words, my reading improved to the point where I was... By a year, I was top reader of the class. I was just... I was eating books. I could... Maybe it's because my ADHD, but I can read like eight books at the same time on the go and not get confused by the different storylines. So I was just surrounded by books and I was loving it. So was it just um, a case of them trying to find ways of untapping or un like releasing what was in you and working around all of these, like you said, these flickery connections? Because actually inside it's all, it's all okay. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and then also trying to get the school on board with the fact that their method of teaching wasn't going to work for me. So they, the teachers themselves had to think outside the box. And I suppose at that time it was very much thinking that there is one schooling method that works for every kid. And if you don't fit into that box and there's you're the, the kid is the person in the wrong, they are the one being disruptive. They're the ones that are deliberately not wanting to learn. Thankfully now, because I do a lot of talks with teaching colleges who where teachers come from, they've become a lot more inclusive in their understanding that there is no one teaching method fits all and that they have to be using different methods and they have to think out of the box and there has to be, I suppose, a multi way of answering questions, whether it's through pictures or vocalizing or written um, now, looking back now, I'm like, oh, why couldn't I have gone to school in the 21st century? It's so much better. Um, but I didn't. Um, but so I went through mainstream schools all the way up to uh, secondary school. And I remember I did my leaving cert, which I think is the equivalent of your O-levels. I'm correct. Or maybe the O-levels are second. Anyway, one of them. Um and I got B's, C's. I didn't fail anything. Um, I worked my socks off um, for it. Um, and I remember, I suppose, my parents got called into the principal's office because in Ireland there's an option to do a leaving cert applied, which is pretty much it's an easier leaving cert where yeah. it's more about practical stuff and it's more on you get points if you're there every day and that you don't miss any days. Um, and in primary school, I went through a burnout um, where I was, I had to be taken out of school because I was physically unable to continue in school because I just had a mental breakdown pretty much because of, I suppose, all the wrong methods of teaching just finally caught up to me. Um, Overwhelming you. So I crashed and I, my psychiatrist had to write to me like, Maggie cannot go to school. Um, at that point, I couldn't, I wasn't functioning. Um, it was a good day for me to get out of bed. Um, and I wasn't depressed and my brain just would not work where I had to be helped to eat because I could not get my hands to work. I literally just pretty bad and the sad thing from that is it doesn't go away so that's now a lifelong condition for me um where it will just hit me out of the blue where i will be fine 
and all of a sudden I will crash and it can take months for me to get back to where I was. Um, because I wasn't given enough time to, I suppose, recover before I was put into secondary school. And I remember, so I did my junior cert and my parents got called in because they, he wanted me to do LCA. And I knew the group that was going to be going into LCA and it was all the kind of messers and the ones who don't really, who were there to have fun and not. Yeah. And I also knew the method of teaching. It's very, it's very practical, but it can also be very abstract. And I don't do abstract at all. Um, and it's also very much based on attendance. And because of my burnouts, I knew that that was going to be an issue because I couldn't guarantee I could be there every day. Um, and so I said, I want to do just a normal leaving cert. I don't want to do LCA. I passed my junior cert, so, you know, I'm able for it. And my principal just turned around to my parents and was just like, well, what are you going to do when she fails? Because she's not going to succeed. Um, he pretty much told my parents they were incompetent for even thinking about letting me do a no more leaving cert, for even listening to the fact. And I have very good reasons why the LCA was not going to suit me. But he pretty much told them they're irresponsible parents. Was, they were incompetent. They were uh, not suited to be parents. And my social worker was present from for that meeting, and she, uh, <laughs> I, uh, she, she stormed out. And my parents had to literally hold her back for me, like we're taking Maggie out of the school because you know they were paying for my SNA. The social services were paying for my resource hours, my SNA. Yeah, and she was like. They had to fight her to be like, literally, she was wanting to go into the classroom, like, Maggie, pack your stuff, we're leaving. You're never coming back to this school. I, um, and so I did a normal leaving cert um, and burnt myself out because I think I put so much expectations wanting to prove my principal wrong that even when people were like, Maggie, you need to relax, you need to, and I was like, no. No, if anything, I'm going to prove him wrong. And so I burnt myself out. But also on my final, I suppose it was on my last year of my leaving cert, all my resources got pulled. I lost my SNA. I lost my resource hours. Um, and so I, my parents made a decision to take me out of school. And they would pay for private tuition grinds for me to do my subjects. And then I would go in school like once a week to get, I suppose, still get to see people and just be able to socialize yeah. and stuff. Um, that all came out of their pocket and it was 40 pounds per um, lesson, I suppose. And I went to five lessons a week. So that added up. Um, and they didn't say anything. They're just like, this is what we have to do. Um and I passed my leaving cert with an A and B's and C's, and uh, well much done. to my, I like to think so, much to my principal's distaste, I was the only one to make it into the papers from his school. Um, and I was very nice. I didn't exactly call him out and stuff, but I did say that it was quite the experience. Um, 
yeah, I was the only student to have actually got interviewed and was in the national papers from that school. Um, and my mother was like, oh, you can go hell all out for it if you want. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to be done for anything. Gracious in victory. Uh, um, but I think schooling, growing up in school, there is people have the wrong ideas when it comes to you when you say you're in care or you're a foster child yeah um so i grew up with a lot of that stigma um of you know i had a different last name to my foster families um so you know you can't really hide that at that time and so you know and i i was very open to saying oh i'm in foster care i just i for me it was a normal thing it wasn't and there'd be a lot of stigma being like, oh, well, what, your mom's a drug addict? Um, clearly you've gone through so yeah. much trauma and you've been abused and all this. And I was like, no, no, I haven't gone through any of that. But they all, and kids, these were kids. Like these were 12 year olds, um, 11. They already had this idea of all this stuff that I must have gone through to have landed in foster care. Um, and of course, so they're like, oh, well, we don't want to be your friend. You're going to try and rob us or, you know, you're not safe to be around. And mm. my mom came in and did a talk about actually what it is foster care means and that watching stuff from TV is not always the right image to get across. Um, that, you know, you can't believe everything you see on the TV when it comes to shows that involve kids in foster care, that actually every child's different. They're not all forcibly removed from their biological home. Um, and so that helped just changing the perception that the kids had of me. Um, I still didn't have a lot of friends, but I think that was more just because of my hidden disability and the fact that I don't like people. Um, I like cats. Cats. You like cats. And dogs. So you finished school um, and then you went on to university and what did not you quite not quite okay fill me in so i finished school um and burnt myself out so i take a and also at that point i what having fasd and what it really meant hit me at that point too when right. i had seen my friends learning how to drive and we're looking to moving out of their homes and we're in relationships and you know i would come home and be like oh so when are we going to look into apartments or when am I going to, and my parents had to sit me down and be like, Maggie, you're, you're not ready. We don't know if you'll ever be ready, but that's not on the cards for you right now. Um, and also, you know, my school, because they assumed I'd fail when the rest of the students, we called in to do their applications for university. I never got called in. So I'd never sent out any applications at all. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's almost discrimination, isn't it? Just this presumption that you, well, or Maggie won't be able to go to university. There's a lot of that. Um, and then I burnt myself out, and so I was at home for a year. Um, and I was going insane because I suppose after being in an environment where you're learning new information every Mm. day, and all of a sudden there's nothing, and I was. I suppose dealing a lot with my grief and loss, the fact that FSD doesn't go away, it wasn't going to go away and stuff. Um, 
I suppose also I was dealing with the grief of at that point I was I gotten adopted. Um, yeah. And that hit me what it really meant as well. So then I became a qualified horticulturist. Um, Just like that. <laughs> wish. Um, there was a course in my town that was, um, I suppose, for if you've been out of work and you're trying to get back into work. Yeah. Um, it was nine months. It was full time. Um, it was local to home, so I didn't have to move anywhere. I would just walk up and down every day. Um, that was a terrible decision. I mean, I passed, but it was I burnt myself out. And the course itself was, it wasn't, a, I suppose, designed for having people who have disabilities. It was full-time. There was no accommodations. Um, I loved plants growing up, and I could keep them alive. Um so that's why I thought, okay, horticulture, you know, you have to be outside and stuff. Um, out of those nine months, eight months, those were in a classroom staring at screens and computers. Um, four weeks out of those, and it was during summer. And we actually had a really nice summer that year. And we were stuck in a classroom. Um, I was the youngest. Uh, the rest, there was a huge age gap between me. And so I was 19, maybe 20. And everyone there was 40, 50. Um, so there wasn't anyone there of my own age. Um, but I succeeded. I, was, I got my qualification that I've never used. And I killed more plants on that course than I did before I'd done the course. Um, and then I went to university and did a... I suppose it was a course that was put on in the college environment so it was a course for individuals with disabilities autism um down syndrome any disability really um and that was really weird and i'd had it was the horticulture course i'd done was qqi level five and this one was a level lower and a lot of the kids and adults because they're all adults you have to be over 18 hadn't gone through mainstream school they'd all come from special schools mm. or and so before i even I, I did the interview and i used my irish humor and passed that interview and was offered a place and i think one of the questions i had was am i going to be challenged in this course because i'm higher functioning and yeah. And I didn't put it across in a bad way, being like, oh, it was just, I needed to know, was I going to be challenged? Because it was a two-year course, and it was 1,600 each term. So the college, you know, it was a lot of money for me to be putting in. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's individual, we'll cater to it, we'll make sure you're challenged. Um. And I wasn't. Um, I wasn't at all. Uh, it was the yeah, work itself just wasn't challenging. I I was done while everyone else was like struggling. Mm -hmm. I spent most of that two years on Facebook. <laughs> just so in does that? Um, I mean, that obviously takes you into young adulthood, and um, I'm conscious of the time, and I don't want to take up much more of your time. But what I'd like to do is invite you back on to talk 
about your FASD advocacy and the work you're doing over there. But as you've sort of, you, you've really articulated really well this kind of this journey through foster care adoption through F- FASD and diagnosis. And as you sort of, as you came to that point in your life, did the future, you know, you, and obviously you are high functioning, but, but that there's no way, there's no real place to put you, is there? That's the challenge. There's, there's not a, don't, it's not, a, it's not a school set up for you. So has that been one of the frustrations really is that you don't sort of quite fit in that community or that community? Yeah. And the fact that I will, I've fallen through every crack possible when it comes to supports or mm. getting supports or being recognized. The fact that I was too high functioning to go to a specialized school, but I was not high enough functioning to have been able to successfully gone through mainstream without there being damage um which was my burnouts which i now have to live with um with jobs i can never work a full-time job because of my burnouts because of i don't know when they're going to hit so yeah i can only ever work part-time it seems like you've so much has happened and you've got all this behind you and you've got all this ahead of you so um, does the future look bright for you? Uh, yeah. Um, I think that my whole journey has brought me to a place where I'm actually really happy. Um, the fact that I'm now achieving things that I thought I would never achieve. Um, mm. And the fact that I think I've learned to accept a lot of things that had occurred earlier on in my life and where I'm at a place where I'm really looking forward to where I guess my next adventure will begin and start um, and where I can be in a really good place to really accept it. And yeah, no, I'm so excited. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Maggie, for coming on. And and you've been so honest about so many things. Um, Absolutely. Scott and I will get you back on because I really would love to find out about your travels around the world, how you sort of got into... FASD advocacy and training and development because I think you're an amazing ambassador for um, the work that you do. So Maggie, thank you so much for your time and look after yourself. Thank you.